Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. It is time to take a look at this Sunday's sports pages. Whether you're with us on the radio or on the OTB Sports app or on our social platforms, you are very welcome along. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Off The Ball or drop us a text on 53106. Let's give you a flavour of what's leading the way today. So... Manchester City getting the job done against Crystal Palace yesterday is the main photograph there on the front of the Sunday Times sports section. Put the champagne on ice is the headline. Pep poised for league title celebrations if Klopp's men can beat Man United today. Young's out of Lions. Sexton still hopeful is Stephen Jones and Peter O'Reilly's latest news on the Lions. And Pogba, whose name comes up quite a bit across the back pages today, is reported here. Pogba agent proposes swap move with Hazard. Paul Pogba's future at Manchester United took a bizarre turn yesterday when Mino Raiola proposed a swap with Real Madrid's Eden Hazard. Raiola, who reportedly made £41 million in Pogba's move from Juventus to Old Trafford, has been intermittently agitating for the France midfielder to move to Real. That is a very interesting transfer story indeed, if there is truth in that. Uh, The Sunday Independent also leads with that Photograph from Manchester City yesterday. Ferran Torres celebrating. Aguero strikes as Pep looks for a pool to do City a favour. Manchester City will be crowned Premier League champions at around half past six today if Manchester United lose to Liverpool. The Irish Mail on Sunday goes with Aguero the hero again. Legendary striker puts City on brink of Premier title. And also in a column there was... A late finish last night, but still printed in many of the newspapers. Katie retains world titles after Thriller with Jonas. The Irish star on Sunday. He'll be top pog is the main headline there. Paul's 400k a week. And Aguero, who else but Sergio, should seal the title. That is the back of the star on Sunday. The Sunday Mirror goes with champagnes in the fridge. That is Pep Guardiola ready to celebrate today. And United mega deal for Pog. Manchester United will open talks with Paul Pogba about a new £400,000 a week contract this month. That story is also reported on the back of the Irish Sun on Sunday. United's flog Pog plan. Paul Pogba will be sold this summer if he refuses to commit to signing a new deal at Manchester United. And then the main headline there on the back of the Irish Sun on Sunday is Pop Idols. Pep, champagne is on ice for a title party. And... Bish Bash Tash is the headline on Katie Taylor as she beats Natasha Jonas in their second matchup. One amateur, one professional matchup. Katie Taylor has won them both. And then the back of the Sunday World this morning. Klopp, we have lost the plot. Pool boss slams his strikers. The boys are not confident enough at the moment, they say. They don't use their first touch, said Klopp. And Super City surge to the title. Forgotten hero Aguero hits stunner as Pep's heroes close in on league crown. If it's not going to be today, it will be soon that Manchester City are crowned 2020-21 champions of the Premier League. So, to get stuck into some of the main stories from those papers, we have Louise Galvin with us, former rugby international, basketball international and Kerry footballer. Good afternoon, Louise. Good afternoon. And we have Dan MacDonald with us as well, football correspondent with the Irish Independent. You're very welcome along, Dan. Afternoon. So, only one place to start, really, when you look at the coverage this morning. Leinster against La Rochelle. And it seems that this build-up has been going on for quite some time. The added day you'd really notice uh, in the newspapers. Everybody trying to to find an angle on Ronan O'Gara, in particular, that hasn't been covered before. I think we have reached peak Ronan O'Gara at this point, Louise. 
Yeah, he's certainly got a lot of the attention over the last few weeks, but he's just such an intriguing character. Um, obviously, he's a regular contributor to off the ball as well. And like, he, you know, he just, what other manager or coach um, would have so much time for media? And yet it seems like he's such a, a player's coach as well. Um, any soundbite he gives, there's an element, obviously he's not giving away any game plans or anything, but there's, there's an element of truth in them. He's not just he's just not just rattling off the sound bites either. So uh, he's a very intriguing character, and um, I think coming into this game, it's it's going to be an interesting one. I think Leinster will travel as favourites, even though it's on over in France. Um, and one interesting piece that Raj um, he was speaking on off the ball. I think it was last week or the week before about trying to get. Um, these La Rochelle players to really understand what a what a European Cup means and trying to get you know almost a team of mercenaries. Obviously, we've a huge uh, Kiwi South African, there's uh, Aussie thrown in there and a Fijian player um, to play for one another and and play for what's in front of them versus a Leinster squad or when when you've grown up in Leinster or Munster in um, in the UK, you tend to uh, know a lot more about the Heineken Cup or European Cup and have so much more of a focus on it. So even to hear him constantly talk about that kind of off-the-pitch stuff, I find just fascinating. And I think that's why we are so obsessed with him. That and wanting him to come back is just, you mm. know, something he's, he's never said is definitely going to happen. But everyone, you know, had a... Everyone in Munster had a bit of a deflated moment when they realised he was getting the head job in La Rochelle for another three years signing on. It was like, oh, he's not... He's staying on there. But I don't think there's any guarantee that Raj is moving anywhere fast. I don't think they three-year deal that was signed a couple of Fridays ago has actually quietened the coverage of Ronan O'Gara at all the ways. No, not at all. Um, and I, I think he's absolutely right. Like, he spoke about how, obviously, it's a family decision, but, I mean, going by, you know, his career since he's left Munster um, or since he went into coaching, I'm sure his family haven't lived in Cork in an awful long time. Um, so they're used to being in France more than anywhere else. And... Uh, for them, staying on is probably not as much of a, a change as opposed to a continuation of the norm. Um, and for him, like his stock is continuously growing. And Ireland has such a set way of playing rugby, and it's it's peters down from the national squad all the way down to the to the provinces. That the more that we have people like Ron O'Gara um, and the likes of Mike Prendergast and these other coaches who are going away and getting all these external influences that are influencing how they coach and how they see the game, that if they do come back to Ireland, it's only going to be a positive to bring that that kind of level of lateral thinking. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the many angles covered over the course of the weekend is in Dennis Walsh's piece today in the Sunday Times. Masked Avenger is the headline. Friends, compatriots, but fierce rivals. O'Gara's relationship with Leinster is a very complicated one. So uh, Dennis, Dennis Walsh has spoken to Shane Horgan, amongst other people, in this piece to just get a sense of Ronan O'Gara's relationship with Leinster when he's in a Munster jersey and his relationship with Leinster when he's in an Ireland jersey. And, and they're very different things. And I guess Donegal Callaghan is also spoken to in this piece. He says, Rod, Shane Horgan, Dennis Hickey and Dricko, they were always together in Ireland camp. They were always challenging each other, it seems, that Ronan O'Gara, when he was having conversations with them, wasn't just about being buddies. He was challenging himself. The conversations would be quite fulfilling, it seemed. But that when it came to it in a Munster-Leinster match, he would light any of them on fire. He would, <laughs> said uh, Donica O'Callaghan. It's interesting, Dan, the, uh, Shane Horgan goes through this particular Ireland team and he talks about O'Driscoll and he talks about O'Gara. He says the focus was on 
Brian as this wonder kid and Ronan as the fly half. You know, he was the housewife's, housewife's favourite. He was the kicker. He was super high profile. Brian and Ronan had a level of fame that the rest of us didn't experience. Their shared experience was built across that. And it, and it is a good point. When it came to O'Driscoll and when it came to O'Gara, at that period in the mid-2000s, it was, you'd be hard pushed to find a sports person more high profile with them applying their trade in Ireland. Yeah, no, like it was. I mean, they are the, probably the first generation of those the, the modern professional sort of rugby stars in Ireland and that 2000s sort of decade will always be associated with it I think and I, I think that's actually the striking thing I mean you kind of wonder how this game would have been previewed if O'Gara wasn't with La Rochelle because I mean it seems like absolutely everything is around Rog and you know would even like would have been like that big in terms of the coverage or people would have to be more resourceful to find angles but in saying that I think actually across the various pieces across the weekend, you're going to like that, that Dennis Wall's piece, as you mentioned, sort of probably centers in on his uh, playing career and his relationships and stuff like that. You know, the, how he sort of formed bonds with certain people. Then there's a few other places like Rory Keane's piece in the, in the mail is about the birth of the coach, um, O'Gara and the sort of the coaching journey that he's gone on. And that ties in, I mean, listen, my colleague Rory O'Connor yesterday had a really good piece where he actually spoke to O'Gara um, about his time in New Zealand, is it with Scott Robertson, the sort of tip to be the next hmm. All Blacks coach, and spoke to him as well about you know O'Gara's growth and maybe how he needed like like to me right. I'm I'm not a big rugby fan, okay, but I still find O'Gara very interesting to listen listen to. But I think he's from like this new generation, as much as he's involved in the game, like a, a newer generation of like great sports people turn pundits who are really giving you something. I think Ruby Walsh, I would put in the same bracket, someone that every time he speaks, I find myself stopping to listen to him when it's talking about the mechanics of, of the sport and like aspects of rugby to me, I find it hard to penetrate because it's not a game on that keen end. There's very technical aspects to it. Horse racing will be similar, I think, to a lot of people as well. Yet there are some people who I think, I think O'Gara and Ruby actually just spring to mind for me, that are actually very good communicators in terms of expressing and explaining um, things that are happening within their game and within their sport. And it's clear, like, you know, I don't think O'Gara, like, like, like a lot of people in the public eye for a long time, like he's, he's been around for ages, like he's had his flaws, he's had his mistakes, he's had his detractors, his critics, but it seems like He's come through a lot of life experiences as quite a like, rounded individual. And it's just interesting across the various pieces today to just get a little nuggets and anecdotes here and there. And um, I think in Dennis Walsh piece, how he was quite good pals with uh, Malcolm O'Kelly, was it? And he embarrassed mm. him in, in uh, one of the big Leinster Munster games and you know rang him later that evening. And just little stories and bits that actually, yes, there's a bit of saturation, Rog, but like, Sometimes we can talk about that in the media and we can talk about it in paper reviews because we're maybe reading all the papers and following it all. But like some people might just pick up one paper across the weekend and want their their Raj piece. And I think there's a fair sort of breadth of them across the various papers, I think. And uh, some interesting stuff in there about who someone who is a very interesting character. And it seems like, uh, you know, his story is a fair bit left to run in it. It seems as well that he represents almost a newer generation of sports person who is acutely aware of the pitfalls of being a successful player going into coaching. That it's obviously been a well-worn trope in football at this stage that great players don't make great managers. But it seems that O'Gara, I know in that piece with Rory O'Connor yesterday, 
said that if I had brought my playing mentality into my coaching career, I would have been dead by now. And that sort of thing that people seem to be more acutely aware of what can happen if you don't change your ways and actually work as hard as a coach as you did in your early days as a player. Well, I think the stakes are higher if when you go into coaching, the higher profile you are in a way. Yes, it can open doors that it won't open for other people and it can be a massive advantage as well too. And you see that in all in all sports. If you're talking about Frank Lampard getting the Chelsea job earlier and so on. But there's no doubt like your status um, you know, can can open doors for you, but also it means that there's probably less forgiveness, you know, for your mistakes. And I think there's always that debate about when do you make that leap to be in like, you know, an assistant or, you know, a backup member as it would be in rugby, like a forward, you know, to, sorry, a backs coach, like to work with certain, you know, aspects of a team. But once you go out there, there's no going back. And it's interesting what Louise says, again, very much from the outside. It seems to me like there's a sense of destiny about that. There's an assumption that Roger's going to go to the Ireland job eventually. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it sort of feels like if this is the road that he's on, that you want to be as prepared as possible. Because in some respects, you know, it, 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 all those people, the higher profile people who, who, who fail, like they often, you hear a lot of them talking afterwards about how they weren't actually prepared, that they couldn't, they couldn't empathize and understand. I think that was a part of the, the, the aspect of his time in New Zealand that was referenced, that it appeared he was going in with the players and doing a lot of uh, technical stuff, telling them about what to do but maybe doing less of connecting with them as individuals and as, you know, as, as to build relationships. And I mean, talk about other high profile uh, Corkman. I mean, you know, that's sort of where Roy Keane struggled really badly as a coach. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of sort of probably being successful as a, as a coach today, you need some of those interpersonal skills and communication skills. You probably can't rule by fear, like you might have in a different generation. Yeah. That, like yeah. It- I definitely think as well he's a huge amount of self awareness. Like when he first got, you know, got his first coaching ticket, it was as a kicking coach in Rasig, if I'm right. And then he gradually, like he didn't. I'm sure he could have had offers of going straight even to being an attack coach um, or a backs coach, but he took it a step lower, like and just to get into that environment. So I think there's a massive amount of self awareness there of what he could become, but what the boxes he needed to tick along the way. Um, and as you say as well there, Dan, that kind of holistic approach he's definitely honed because I'm not sure he would have been a hugely holistic uh, player when he was at Munster. He was obviously incredibly driven and he was the the key attacker, key, obviously fly half in the way Munster play. He was just, he was massive to how, um, to uh, pivotal to how the, the team attacked and the same when he was at his prime with Ireland. Um, but he's very much listening to him now. He's particularly when you're talking about going away to New Zealand and um, France, where you've different nationalities coming in, like speaking, you know, particularly about Botia and the Fijian, like from playing on the seven series, I've seen up close what Fijian players are like and how they prepare. And you think, Jesus, these aren't tuned in at all. Like, and then they just switch it on when they need to. Um, it's a, it's almost like that level of understanding of um, how different players prepare and then in Ireland, we've only a certain amount of, I suppose, exposure of um, international players coming in, South Africans or Kiwis. But generally, they're coming to our culture, so they're adapting to our culture. So what's it like when you're actually taking them out? You're you're not playing and coaching in Ireland. You're going to a different country, and you have to more adapt to them, or right? like him going over to to the Crusaders. So I think he's bringing a huge amount of like we always back his. His, I suppose, his technical ability, his knowledge of the game, 
um, and his competitiveness. But what he's added is all those extra little bits. And um, even though he'll be taking over from John O'Gibbs, he's said that he very much wants to be on the field as much as he is at the moment. And that's hugely important to him. Um, but, you know, he'll also be using those bus journeys to try and get to know his players as much as possible because everyone is an individual at the end of the day and different things make them tick. Um, and I think he's kind of learned that as a coach, maybe more as he did as a player. That comparison as well between O'Gara publicly and the change he's affecting in dressing rooms is interesting as well. And in Peter O'Reilly's piece, he says the Raj Lovin reached a crescendo last month with an interview he conducted on BT Sport following their win in Gloucester. The KBA interview as it is remembered. Uh, given that keeping the ball alive is one of the most rudimentary concepts in rugby union, you wonder whether it is a fascination with acronyms that caused the interview to go viral or just O'Gara's ability to charm an interviewer and his audience. And O'Reilly makes the point that that charm can also unify a group of men to success. That it's not necessarily clutching at straws to look at what Ronan O'Gara is saying publicly. They're not independent of one another how he would communicate, say, after a big win in Gloucester to how he would communicate to his players, Louise. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, d- I don't think he's someone who has um, a whole load of cloaks and daggers. Like, I think he's, you know, even as a, a broadcaster, even back in the day, like sometimes, you know, we were all thought, you know, everyone pays attention. You're looking like Raj could be nearly texting when an analyst is chatting, but you're still intrigued by him. There's this, almost this element of what you see is what you get. And um, obviously he's not going to be giving away... Um, you know it's serious information but at the same time he's not she's not leading you up the garden path of what he's saying because it's clear to see as well um and yeah like that kind of kba interview it was fantastic watched it back about three times because it was so um simple and yet every time you you listen to it or you watched it you felt you knew a bit more or you understood it a bit more um and communication is so huge so important like you could have best coach in the world but unless he can get his message across to the players, him or her, um, and that they can understand it at their level, then it's it's futile, really. And he seems to have that skill. If it's not Ronan O'Gara you're reading about in the rugby world in the papers this morning, it is probably going to be the British and Irish Lions. Uh, Dan MacDonald, your favourite subject? <laughs> well, listen, um, it, it's not. But <laughs> in, in saying that, like it's sort of interesting the the this the scope or the breadth of coverage given to it. Like, to me, it's almost like, thinking about the Lions is, it's like the great pub debate brought to life. You know, like, you know the way people will, uh, when, when people go to pubs whenever they're open, you know, they'll, they'll sit around and talk about the best team to play, you know, or people, Manchester United are playing Liverpool, do a joint 11 of the, the best 11 of the teams. And, and there's actually very few, and yes, you'll have your representative teams, like the All-Stars, whatever, at the end of the year, you know, or NBA All-Star teams that play a match and stuff. But there's probably the Lions is probably the one where you actually get to play that game a bit, but then there's actually games mm. that come at the end of it. And uh, while I don't have especially strong opinions on it, I sort of find the survival of it like uh, sort of interesting in its own way. Like you know, when you have the it's it's really about like tradition, and each sport has its own traditions, and it's a bit like the the Ryder Cup in, in golf. You know, to some people from the outside, it's a bit of a bit of an odd one. You know, when a lot of the Europeans play in America now, but yet within that game, that rivalry sort of makes sense. And maybe to me, if now I'm looking at going, well, hang on, we're talking about Ireland competing in a Rugby World Cup against somebody's top, you know, against South Africa and England clearly, you know, have won a World Cup. And yet you have this concept where they come together and you think it's kind of quirky. Um, but obviously it's also very commercially successful as well. And that's why clearly uh, they were determined to save this no matter what. I mean, in all the COVID debates, um, 
I, I know there was the talk of deferring it and then going to Australia and stuff. There obviously seemed to be the determination not to miss a year because I presume if you miss a year, then does the concept get damaged or vulnerable in any way? I don't know. People, maybe that's not the case, but it seemed like there was a real determination to keep it because it is a it is a great debate, and there is some interesting pieces. I like you know Stephen Jones in the Sunday Times talking about how. Uh, parochial concerns can sometimes overtake a tour and I suppose we had our national outpouring of grief when uh, Brian O'Driscoll was dropped um, a couple of years back which which obviously you know raised questions about well are we invested in the results of this or not or are we invested in the results of our players in this and that was obviously there have been flashpoints with that but that that's my take I think Louise would be able to give more insight on the actual decisions that have been you know debated and faced um, but there is a lot of coverage of it. Yeah, Thursday is the big day when the, the squad gets announced. So everybody basically is is picking their Lions squads, their Lions teams, their Lions captain is a, is a big subject up for debate. It's a good point you make about this idea of it being a pub debate that comes to life. I, I know I'm on my own here, but it's one of the reasons why I, I actually used to really like the international rules. And even though it made absolutely no... Uh, it, it, it like it didn't move the dial for anybody seeing Ireland beat Australia or whatever it was a pub debate that actually came to life who would be the best 15 players of the GEA counties around Ireland that they were put onto the team the Lions actually has this tradition so yeah it's, it's something to be embraced Louise it, it is the captain isn't it that, that seems to be garnering a lot of the interesting writing this morning yeah I mean obviously whoever makes the plane there's always huge speculation um, and it's very difficult to for anyone to accurately pick that but um, I think it's interesting that this was the three players that are kind of being named um, most consistently amongst the papers anyway are Adam and Jones for obvious reasons and his leadership capabilities are, well, I don't have to um, remind anyone about them here. Um, Maro Toje, who again, then we have, you know, question marks over his, um, certainly his discipline, um, certainly, you know, a real attritional block to go down and take on South African and he, a young fit like a guy that you'd imagine would last the pace over the three tests. Um, and then our own Johnny Sexton, um, who again, in, you know, if you look across the the predicted squads, isn't making everyone's squad. So, th- you know, there's, it's always going to be a debate when a potential captain isn't even making everyone's squad. So um, that's definitely going to be one that's going to be quite an intrigue. I mean, you've, Stuart Hogg is obviously captain in Scotland and he's a definite name for the, for the um, squad or for the squad in total. But going down to South Africa, I'm not sure you'd have a full back as your captain necessarily. So I think we're going to see them closer to the coalface or even at at 10. So there's a huge amount of intrigue. And I agree with Dan as well. There's almost this real commercial element of it. And there was, you know, initially a few months ago, I thought that the Lions tour isn't going to go ahead. But it just shows just how commercially viable it is that it is happening. Because you'd imagine compared to you know, your Six Nations or your summer tours, games that actually contribute to world rankings, even a Women's Rugby World Cup has been postponed. Like essentially the Lions tour, although it's massively proud moment for any player that's selected, it doesn't count towards any world rankings, towards any, um, I suppose, tournament qualification, but it was going ahead no matter what. Um, it looks like the players will be pretty well um, lined out before the, they even take the plane. I think it's something like nine tests before they leave uh, leave for South Africa. Um, it's just that that juggernaut is just going to roll on because of that whole commercial element of it, which kind of, I think um, Michael Alwain, um in the Sunday Independent, he was talking about how, you know, the romanticism is nearly a bit washed off at a little bit at this stage. And yet we'd all tune in and be intrigued. But I have to say, even as a rugby fan, 
obviously there and I'm 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 a line supporter but I wouldn't say I get absolutely devastated when they lose and I, I, I think it's a bit of um yeah a bit like the not even so much the international rules because obviously I feel Irish but you know, I think it'd be great to go on a Lions tour for the crack. Mm. I don't think it would be the same as when you invest in, for example, Ireland going to a Rugby World Cup and you're supporting them there. Um, so there is an element of uh, almost voyeurism with it, just um, looking on, more, nearly more excited to see who's going to be selected. Yeah. And that kind of nationalistic, absolutely. Brian Driscoll, why was he dropped? You almost feel a bit like, geez, I hope Jonathan Davies does wrong or does poorly so that we, we can all stand up for provider just which is wrong if we're all supporting the lines like so it's a little bit of a voyeuristic kind of element to it as well 100 percent. that's where the intrigue is i know that there's been a lot of people pushing the notion that this could be like a, a record leinster involvement for example in the lions whenever the, the, the squad comes out on thursday there'll be how many irishmen are actually on the plane and and that is where we probably get our kicks from the lions and then the rest i guess is just from uh, a pure sense of entertainment um that is basically uh, the rugby coverage for us this afternoon. There's plenty more still to come after the news at two o'clock. Just to give you a, a quick preview of what's coming, there's loads on the return to GEA. Eamon Sweeney's got great stuff on the fact that it's just back, cherishing the fact that sport is back. We're going to have uh, Mark Gallagher on the on GEA in Northern Ireland. That's a fantastic piece. And Dermot Crowe's got a brilliant piece on the 1961 All-Ireland Finals. So plenty on that front and loads on the soccer as well. There is also an interview in the Sunday Independent by Paul Kimmage speaking to one Jerry Gilroy. All of that coming up after the two o'clock news. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Welcome back. Louise Galvin and Dan McDonald with us reviewing the Sunday sports pages. We're going to have live commentary of Leinster against La Rochelle from three o'clock this afternoon. And then from half four, it is Manchester United against Liverpool in the Premier League. We'll also have live commentary of that one. Right. So we are turning our attention to the GAA, which is covered pretty extensively in the papers this morning a load of different stories to get into uh, Louise I think there's just this general sense of excitement that hops off the pages that it has been brilliant to have had so much sport mainly through TV over the last little while but there's something more parochial about the GEA coming back even if people aren't going to be at games but especially for people like yourself who've been back training over the last little while and cherish the return we deserve it is the headline on Eamon Sweeney's piece which I think sums up your mood I suspect yeah, yeah, just in the door from training myself, not too far from your own home spot own. Um, <laughs> and it's just fantastic. Like, it's the buzz that you get. Like, for me, it's coming back into, um, I'm a new player back into the squad because there's been so much change um, down in Kerry. But still, like, I feel like I've knocked 15 years off my <laughs> age profile, skipping in the door. And don't skip out as, as well as I skipped in. But... Um, it's brilliant to be back and like the, you just forget that endorphin release um, like we've been training away yourself on your own but to actually get back into the team environment is, is huge and I actually really enjoy just driving past or walking or cycling whatever past a, a pitch whether it be a J pitch or a soccer pitch in the last um, week or so and seeing kids out training and playing with massive gum shields hanging out of their mouth and bibs too big for them and half of them are just chatting to their friends but there's such a there's such a wholesomeness to it and I it actually nearly reminds me as well of um how much we owe the volunteers that run all these clubs um like it's huge and like anything it's only when it's gone you really realize how much they're contributing to our communities um so it's pretty awesome to have not only the inter-county I suppose 
side of it back, but also to have the underage and the kids back training again, it's it's huge. Dan, did you feel you got this kickback when the League of Ireland came back to, to full action? Well, yes and no. Mm. I mean, you do, but like you still, I mean, you miss people. Like, yeah. you know, like the the, the, the games, like, I, I appreciate there's this excitement about games returning. And I think you speak to like, you know, people like Louise who are involved and, you know, the you know, athletes who are involved who are sort of playing and contribute and they have that routine and structure and regularity back in their lives that they miss. And and clearly like with kids training that's back now. But like the games themselves without fans for me, unfortunately they're pretty uh, like it's it's a pretty soulless experience. And and you now find yourself longing for the next step, which is, you know, to 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 limited supporters in stadiums because and particularly the League of Ireland really it's about the atmosphere and the people and and you know that sort of that's part of the colour of it really. Uh, so without it, it can be it can be pretty bleak at times. And I think you know it's one thing that like there's obviously a great buzz in the last couple of days, you know, last week. But for me, I still don't I, I still don't think that um, you know getting some kind of limited supporters back to stadiums it's not high enough up the agenda for me uh, personally. Now I appreciate that it, it can be quite complicated, particularly when you branch it out to say all codes and all sports and it's probably a numbers game to some degree like the operation of you know you can't just necessarily handpick certain games and i mean they are going to do that for a trial i think hmm. but you know i appreciate just complications with that but i'm not just answering your question honestly i mean yes i felt that in in february when i had a games to go to again to report on and um, but the more games you go to the more you miss people being there and um, i really can't stress that enough yeah like uh Eamon sweeney's suggesting that the gea should be more in focus for these trials to get fans back. He says it's encouraging to have a, a July trial uh, involving Leinster rugby, but that the GEA maybe should be more... Uh... I don't think there should be a competition. I, right. I don't like that. I don't think there's any more worthy than other than the other, personally. You know, I think whatever whatever we can do, people who, who go to whatever sport are missing their sport equally. You know, there's no hierarchy of who's missing who. Like, I understand the point that he's making, and I'm very conscious of how... The, the spread of GEA is so vast because it, it touches every sort of village and town and so on. But, uh, you know, I, I don't agree with that mindset. I think everyone, there's a lot of, you know, think of like indoor sports and basketball and stuff that don't get the same mention. Like sometimes a lot of this is focused through the GEA, a lot of the coverage. And I have a slight issue with that sometimes. I think all sports, all codes, everyone's missing it the same. And I think any trials that are done, I think it should be across, you know, a number of sports at the same time rather than just picking one because it's more worthy. I, I don't, particularly like that language myself to be honest it is striking that you have the return to play kind of jubilation uh, with, with regards to the return to play in the newspapers and then right beside it you've got preview for the Alliance Hurling League next weekend Louise it is quite striking that this is happening so soon that competitive action is next week and it feels like training has only just come back yeah and even though I was looking at the dates I was kind of like what the hurlers are back next weekend I mean they obviously only would have been had two weeks training done by today mm. um and they taper down this week like as a physio as well i just think obviously they've had to do this because of fixtures but the injury risk there is huge and what's going to be massively important um is who has done i suppose enough of the work before the squads got back together and then not to overdo it now because even compared to like and we had a bit of a condensed season there last winter but the ground is so much different like mm. I know coming off, like we have a serious amount of training done individually, but like my groins and my calves, it's so much different when you're trying to react to 
an open environment, that kind of open live, skill level of having multiple people around you all going at a, a fast frenetic pace. So like even on our tendons and our ligaments, it's different when you're playing on firm ground like we are at the moment. And sure, listen, we're delighted. It's brilliant. But there's going to be a whole element of kind of injury prevention. And of course, anyone picks up even a medium term injury now, they're going to you know lose their spot for a while. So I think uh, the squads that have the best kind of balance of not overtraining because we can't spend a whole lot of time in the park at the moment. It's just too close to game time, particularly for the hurlers. Um, that are the squads that are going to have you know more fit players to choose from when it comes down to the crunch games. Um, but yeah, it's mad to think they're they're talking out already this weekend. Like I mean, two AVB games or internal games, and that's it. They're off. Yeah, for sure. The, the injuries is something to, to keep an eye on. Obviously, Mayo already had their scare with Aidan O'Shea, which thankfully doesn't look too bad at this standpoint, but I'm sure there's going to be more of those stories over the next little while. Um, Dan, one story that caught your eye, caught, caught all of our eye, I think, this morning is in the Irish Mail on Sunday, page 64 and 65. Mark Gallagher has got a special report called Across the Divide as Northern Ireland marks 100 years of existence. We look at GEA's attempts to win over both communities. So uh, tomorrow is the centenary of Northern Ireland coming into existence when the border was created on this island. This is a really fascinating look down into what the GEA is doing across the divide in the north to to try and attract uh, more unionist heavy areas into the playing of Gaelic games. Yeah, I think this is like every time I do the Sunday paper review, it feels like you're talking about a good Mark Gallagher piece. (laughs) But I think he, he tends to sort of find something not quite left field, like, you know, because obviously there's a lot of debate around, you know, the Northern Ireland 100 years of existence and polls and whatnot, but like, just to, to sort of bring it to sport and take something like Arlene Foster's legacy being discussed this week, the fact she obviously went to, uh, you know, one of, not the first DP politician, as he points out, to attend the GA match, but it was quite high profile, high profile when she did. And yet, just to delve into this area of the GEA in in the north, you know, and it's, I mean, there's a lot in it. And as much as I'd like to think I'm up in my history, like there was actually little bits and bobs and details in here that I wasn't necessarily aware of. I think probably you were the same because mm. um, mm. it, it, it's referenced by maybe one or two contributors in the piece that one of the issues uh, like Linda Irvine, the sister in law of David Irvine, the sort of well-known um, you know, he was a, a unionist voice in, in the peace process, but someone who was involved in, you know, the the troubles very, you know, going back in, in, in time. But but you know, her speaking about uh like she's probably an advocate for some degree for this integration that you're speaking about. But but for example, I think the point was made that the uh the, the, the GEA's constitution saying that one of the aspirations is a 32 county republic. I actually wasn't aware personally that was in the GEA's constitution myself. Maybe that, that's that's common knowledge, but there's an interesting detail in there uh, from Colin Bradley, the the former Fermanagh footballer, uh, who has also played um, Irish league uh, soccer football. He, he makes the point that it was only inserted into the constitution in 1971 in an effort to appease the more hardliners when the ban was finally lifted, as in the ban on uh, attending foreign sports. Any GA member doing it, and it's always very striking that when there's big debates about the direction of um, big decisions around, say, the GEA opening up to some degrees, like it was the Security Forces Rule 21, which was removed in 2001. But even in the Croke Park, opening up Croke Park debate, there was a lot of strong opposition from the Ulster counties at that point. And clearly, like, it's a heavily, you know, complex point because, you know, for so many people, I remember Dermot Crow and the Sunday Independent last year doing a very good piece around an iconic photo 
from the troubles in the 80s of I think it was around Loch Gale and a couple of uh, boys hurling on the street in Belfast when there was like a British army patrol hovering around them. And clearly for so many people in the north, like the GEA is very much tied in with being an expression of their identity. And as a result, like, you know, the, the, the idea, it, it's an area where sort of trying to find harmony has been quite, quite difficult. And, and even within that, like, it's just something I'm always interested in, like the, the, after all, the, the Mount Rushmore series uh, on various counties. And uh, I remember talking to uh, uh, the dog player a couple of years back about how the dog dressing room had a mix of, say, you know, guys from Dublin, guys from around the sort of uh, Southern Ireland, I suppose, you know, the 26 counties. And then they had a quite a strong dairy contingent in the dressing room and how they'd be on the bus discussing GEA. And like one of the lads from Derry thought like the All-Ireland was every four years, the final, you know, like sort of remarkable stuff mm-hmm. that you almost couldn't get your head around it. But that actually even in parts of Derry, which would be like Catholic parts of Derry, their awareness of GEA would be completely different to other parts of like uh, the province. You know, it's sort of incredible, really. And this piece to me just sums up, you know, the, the sort of the complex web that it is there. I mean, Colin Bradley references that he was playing in the Irish League with Ballon and Mallard. He was looking at players on the pitch from the Protestant tradition thinking they'd be great GEA players. But so many of them, for whatever reason, have never felt like Listen, we know obvious reasons why they don't feel it's the sport for them. But for some who would be a bit more open-minded to it, there's obviously a challenge to maybe welcome them in the door, you know. So I just think it's a very good all-encompassing piece on what is a pretty uh, complex topic. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dermot Marsden, the former Armagh footballer, is also quoted in the piece. Uh, he's uh, from Lurgan himself. I, I remember we had uh, Jacob Stockdale on the show last week, who is from Lurgan in, in Armagh as well. And, and he was talking about actually playing Gaelic games and the, and the effort that has been made in recent years to, to try and integrate a little bit more. That He picked up a Gaelic football when he was in his 20s or in, or in his late teens, at least, as, as part of that, which is pretty class. And Marsden talks about the fact that they would enter an All-Britain Championship. Uh, a team from Banbridge would enter. And he says, he remembers a few years ago, one of the teams came from Banbridge and we travelled on the 12th of July. The night before, some of the boys would have been at their local bonfires that is part of their cultural celebrations. And the next day, they are packing their GEA gear into their bag and heading to London to play in a Gaelic football tournament. It's, it's phenomenal stuff like this. And as you say... Linda Irvine, who's quoted in this piece, her real bugbear is the nationalistic connection that the GEA still maintains in its law book or in, in its rule book, essentially, that that idea there that it was put in to appease those people who were against the removal of the ban at the point and uh, at that point. And she says that clubs and grounds being named after hunger strikers or IRA volunteers uh, is one of those issues, uh, pointing out quite reasonably that nationalists wouldn't be comfortable if a club was named after someone who was in the UVF or LVF. It's a fascinating piece, Louise, a load of different complicated things and stuff like the East Belfast project as well. There is some brilliant work going on to try and address some of these issues. Yeah, and I have to say as well, Owen, certainly from my point of view, like thinking I'm growing up in a real GA stronghold, um, I I certainly didn't feel, I don't know if you felt, but sometimes I think when we're down the opposite end of the country growing up, didn't really have an understanding or of an awareness of I suppose how much of an identity it was to be playing Gaelic games when you're living in the north, um, or you know how, as one of the quotes from the the article stated, I think I'm not sure if it was from Colin Bradley himself, 
that in Fermanagh half the county is underwater and half the other half don't want to play a gated game. So <laughs> like I thought it was particularly good. Obviously you want to harness as much talent as you, as you can get. Um, and Fermanagh has one of the lowest um, senior players uh, in terms of numbers available uh, nationwide. But I think in terms of the GA moving forward, I actually wasn't aware either that one of the goals of the GA was that we'd um, have a 32 county nation. Um, when you compare that with, you know, people up north to fifths or so wanting to not be unionist or nationalist, they just want to be Northern Irish. Um, that doesn't align with that two fifths of the population there either. So you're already, the, you're probably cutting out three fifths, if not more of the population. Um, and when we're looking at Ireland in terms of being multicultural anyway, like and bringing in, you know, we have um, people from all over the world now living and playing Gaelic games from grassroots up, you know, what do they know or care about a 32 county Ireland? They see Ireland as it is today. So maybe it is something that needs to be looked at, particularly if, you have great work being done in the likes of Banbridge and East Belfast um, by the likes of Dearman Marsden. And they're trying to say, look, come on in. We're actively trying to seek out that Protestants now play Gaelic football. Well, it's an obvious deterrent if you turn around and like that, you see um, some of the, the rules that are still in, in situ, as Linda Irvine pointed out. And um, it is funny, like we had a little bit of that with rugby as well. I mean, I, I would have lived with um, uh, Ashley Baxter's uh, from county down as I'd call it and she asked me one day uh why where you know the the green and gold bunting I'd put on my bags to just make my bag different when it came off the carousel and we traveled she asked me did I make them and I was like headbands like for us for me growing up headbands are absolutely part of summer and you pick one up every year but she didn't know what it was and she was like how come you have so many of them and it's it's that kind of ability to use sports if you can separate it from politics and then use it to transcend those communities, it can be so, so powerful. So that was a really good piece and I really enjoyed reading it and more power to those to those men and women up there who are doing such good work. Yeah, it's in the- I, I, think, I think it's interesting, like, like I mean, I, I, we're not bringing this down as sort of political chat. Like I am probably, I do think probably in our lifetime, we're gonna have some kind of border poll. I think that is going to happen at some stage. And there's no doubt that the GEA is going to be challenged by mm. that. You know, that, that all these topics are gonna to become uh, a subject of debate. I mean, listen, you know, there have been, uh, I think Joe Brawley and people have written at various times about stories of the troubles where like, you know, people around GEA clubs would have been targeted at times, you know, like there's, 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 there's obviously like a deep emotional connection in some cases with the relationship between the GEA club, but that obviously the people on the other side can be alienating too. And, and I think like, you know, I think it's a very relevant piece because I feel like a lot of this history, we're going to be returning to it again. And, you know, when, in my view, that does happen at some stage in the future, but the GA is going to face a lot of uh, challenges diplomatically in terms of how they approach it. Yeah, for sure. Like even that idea of it having a 32 county ambition in, in the rule book, like, I mean, that that obviously is at odds with with people that they want to encourage to play the game if they want to try and move into into different areas of, of Northern Ireland in particular. So it's going to be really interesting. It's going to have either a part to play or it is going to be affected by the move towards a border poll for sure. Uh, one other quick GA story you wanted to mention before we move on is in the Sunday Independent. John Green writing that clubs driving change in a real meaningful way. So this is uh, the one club model, Louise, which uh, is essentially the fact that it breaks down the barriers between the LGFA or the Camogie Association and the GEA that nationally you have 
three different organisations running the show. But at club level, quite a lot of uh, setups have a one club model, which breaks down those barriers completely. Uh, this has meant essentially, I guess, subsidising the fees that some young girls would have in order to play with clubs. That's one of the things that they've gone towards. Uh, and generally, this has been an actual way of putting people's money where their mouth is and actually supporting real and meaningful change and ensuring that access to pitches and access to facilities is actually fair game across genders when it comes to uh, Gaelic games in clubs. Is this is this something new in your experience, Louise, or, or has this been happening for quite some time? No, I, I don't think it's new. I think, I mean, in general, you're under five, sixes, under sevens. Boys and girls are all thrown in together at the local club, which is invariably the male club's pitch because most um, female GA clubs don't have don't have their own pitch now. Fair enough, because you'd have maybe well you have less GA club female GA clubs around the country. For example, my own club, Finnerig, are amalgamated with the neighbours St Sennans, so we're Finnerig St Sennans, and we equally go between the two pitches. Um, but they're two male clubs separately. But at that kind of underage level, like just like my nephew and niece last week, they're down to the pitch together, and it's only when you probably get. I, I would say as as a girl, you only really are aware of this separation when you start to get to maybe representational squads around under 14 or so when you realise, oh, actually, there's a completely different association. And then that's when you start to see the disparity between maybe what's um, what's available to the female versus the male version of the game. Um, but the club is that positive element that gets it all started and gets it all going. And at the end of the day, certainly if you're a representational player, it's where you come back to as well and where it's all tied in. Um, and it is that kind of benevolence that has helped the growth of LGFA and, and our ladies Gaelic players in both Camogie and in, and in ladies football. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to go down to a debate of um, poor, poor females and poor uh, athletes that are out of pocket and that. I think this is a, this is a good piece about mm. how, you know, we don't necessarily have to align them separately the whole way down because it doesn't make any sense and it wasn't done that way um but uh, invariably you know once we get to the that representational stage we do tend to separate back out again um and i think the days of you know the girls getting kicked off the pitch because the lads want to warm up i'd like to think that's not happening i don't think it is um fair enough there might be you know you mightn't get the prime slot but once you have that protected slot, I think that's a that's a start, and that you're you know allowed on every pitch, not just on the back pitch or the one that's not lined. Um, and I think there's a lot more equality or equity within the club structure, certainly, and you know we do have to be quite grateful for that too. Um, but having said that, the club isn't set up around the male members of the club. Even if you have your senior male team, there's always you know there's the, the mothers, there's the sisters, there's the supporters. There's a huge because GA is such a community sport, it's 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 entrenched across families and it's families that run those sports. It's families that are doing all the fundraiser and the lotto and that sort of thing. So I think it's it's less of an issue because it's it's just been there all along. Um, and the more young girls who start playing the game, they're just as welcome down there as the as the young boys. Yeah, for sure. And uh, John Green does zoom out a little bit, does look at the intercounty level and quotes Gemma Begley from the WGPA saying that players are out of pocket due to their sport uh, I know Darren O'Sullivan was uh, talking about that as well on the show this week about the expenses and that's still just not at an acceptable level when it comes to inter-county football and camogie um, there's a good piece from Colm work uh, kind of uh, something completely different on, on page 8 of the Sunday Independent talking about all style goalkeepers putting the fear of God into forwards there's actually good 
goalkeeping content across the papers this morning just by pure coincidence it seems that that Cullimore workpiece goes through some of the classic names like uh, Martin Furlong who would combine the roles of peacekeeper law enforcer stopper and kicker out uh, he was a brilliant servant to Offaly for almost two decades and a good many forwards myself included knew what was coming if you backed into the square with a high ball coming in it was time for a quick prayer so he uh, paints the picture of those old school goalkeepers who of course uh, have been usurped by Stephen Cluxon and the art of perfection when it comes to the goalkeeper uh, which Dan is not too dissimilar from uh, it's amazing to say this uh, from the Jonathan Northcroft piece Colin work and Jonathan Northcroft uh, kind of colliding uh, for one great theme today uh, he's talking about Ederson uh, in the Sunday Times uh, talking about him as a potential Football Writers Association Player of the Year I hadn't heard this touted too much but now that he paints the picture it's uh, a fairly compelling case uh, goalkeepers don't tend to get many of uh, the accolades when it comes no. to, to English football and in fact some of the great teams actually don't get as many accolades as, as they might think they should get yeah I think it was pointed out that uh, of that sort of city generation of like Aguero and uh, well who else was mentioned I think it was company and uh, yeah, yeah sorry Silver company Torre and Aguero yeah you know, have, have have gone through the English game without a single footballer of the year, you know, recognition. And this is always the case. Like you, you occasionally have towards the end of a career, someone's career, where they try and right or wrong. I sort of thought Aguero would have a chance if he had a really good season this year, but it's been ruined by sort of injury. That you get that, like I mean, didn't Ryan Giggs get it at the end of his career? It's almost like a lifetime achievement award, as opposed to like a particular season. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's interesting you mentioned like about the the, the crossover the. You know, the Colin O'Rourke piece, which basically, you know, is summed up as goalkeepers a bit mad, really, aren't they? You know, and that was sort of the the line about goalkeepers in a lot of commentary was, well, you have to be mad to be a goalkeeper. Whereas now, no, like to be a goalkeeper in a lot of codes, you, you more so need to be a, a prototype of sort of a particular style of goalkeeper that is needed. Um, and that certainly seems to be the case in, in GEA. I've spoken to people like Gary Rogers, who's gone coaching in that world, who's you know, come from the League of Ireland to coaching GEA and maybe talking about how there wouldn't necessarily be a great history there in like technical coaching of goalkeeper and goalkeepers. And he always felt that that was a growth area, you know, could be developed uh, to, to, you know, to suit the sort of demands of that sport now. And certainly, as you see now with, with Ederson, like Jonathan Norcott references a moment early in there, or sorry, the second half of the PSG game, which I actually do remember, mm. where Mbappe went, was a great through ball. And of course, when you're watching it on TV, uh, you don't have the full sort of uh, panoramic shot. So this great through ball is played. You think, oh, great chance here. And all of a sudden, Ederson comes into the screen to like take the ball away. But interestingly, you would have seen Gavin Bazunu play for Ireland uh, you know, in, in March, who of course is at Man City now, and again, has that ability to come off that line. And that's almost part of the brief. That's what you do now. And like Bazunu was 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 taken to City not just because he was a good keeper, it's because they spotted that some of his attributes, you know, were suited to what they want and demand from a goalkeeper. And Edison is very much like uh, reflective of that now. And uh, yeah, I mean, the case for him to be considered, yeah, like I, I can I can see why he's I can see why he's in the mix for sure. I can't I don't think he's a chance of winning it personally but I mean I think obviously it's a, it's a valid point to raise and to be honest like a lot of the football stuff today I mean I know Liverpool are playing Man United um, but it doesn't really have that um, you know massive sort of big game intensity hanging over it Jonathan Northcott references another piece how some of the recent games between them have been so disappointing but I think also as well is because um, while there is Champions League places to play for we're a small bit in the junk time of the season in the Premier League yeah. the, the Champions League race is quite interesting 
but it's not like that Liverpool. We've had a couple of really big Liverpool United games in recent memories that have been like really like this is the big game that could define the season. Um, today wouldn't take that box. No, for sure. I, I think there's a, a good nugget as well in the, in the Northcroft piece about Ederson that those great teams maybe don't get the individual accolades they deserve. Ginola winning Footballer of the Year during the, the treble season is something that still winds up Manchester United fans. And to kind of come full circle on the goalkeeper point, it got me immediately thinking about Stephen Cluxton not maybe getting as many All-Stars as a lot of Dublin fans will, will say he deserved down through the years. So so it's a really interesting piece uh, worth checking out. Um, we are into the last five minutes or so here, folks. There are still a couple of really good pieces you want to get to. I think we should probably touch on the four-page spread, shall we, in the, the Sunday Independent today. Paul Kimmage's um, four-pager with uh, Ger Gilroy. Ger Gilroy is back where he started behind the mic and off the ball having lit the fuse of the Irish sports broadcasting revolution. Moving the dial uh, is the headline on this with a, a collection of photos uh, which are over the past couple of years some more recent ones in this. This is obviously a great crack to be able to discuss this on the Sunday <laughs> paper review. I am of course sitting in for, for Joe Malloy. It would have been even greater crack had Joe Malloy been sitting in the main seat today. Joe, the Joe no. I, oh, the I Joe don't know. I, something... You know, he's he, well timed. You do, know, he's probably, yeah, he might be doing something else. I think, do do, Vir, do Virgin have the Leinster game today? I, I don't yeah, think. They, I, mean, I don't <laughs> think they do actually. So, I mean, like, what, what, why isn't oh, Joe Malloy here? That was an excuse. Yeah, like, but I, I find this one slightly strange <laughs> as a. As an independent staffer who contributes regularly to Off the Ball, appearing on the Off the Ball newspaper review, talking about reviewing an independent <laughs> interview with the head of Off the Ball, and I'm thinking, Louise, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's there's an exchange um, in the last column of uh, the four pager here where Kimmage asks Jer, "What about ego?" And Jer is like, "What about it? You don't have one. Everybody has an ego." Kimmich says, you describe Joe Malloy as the best sports broadcaster in the country. And Jarrah says, he is. He's won four of the last five Imros. How many have you won? Three. So it's up to me, who has won zero Imros, has never been nominated for an Imro, to bring you the breakdown of this piece today. There are two uh, interesting teams in this, like, in fairness, that we can uh, properly tease out. Uh, It is the idea of what people want from their sports coverage and from their media coverage nowadays it is it, it in many ways this is interesting i guess just from my perspective to get kimmage's take on off the ball as much as anything else because this really shines through in the piece there's one really quick question that he asks what's the point of video so he he, he gets uh, talking to Jer about the, the movement towards video the movement towards more digital audience and he's like what's the point of video in that question you can probably guess what he thinks of video and then he talks uh, about the uh, the dilution of coverage. So Kimmage asks, so you've spread off the ball wider, but what about the perception that it's become diluted? That what once made it great is not as great anymore. It's certainly different. And then Jarrah says, that's your polite way of saying you don't like it as much these days. Kimmage says, no, I don't. An example, I tuned in the other night and there was half an hour devoted to Nathan Murphy's dilemma about his son wanting an England jersey. Seriously, half an hour. That's taking the piss. And Gerald Lassie says that's one of the most spoken about pieces we've done in a long period of time. The next day it became a massive topic of conversation. And, and, and that's a, a, a really interesting dilemma for a lot of people right now about what they want, about the, the serious sports coverage or the fun stuff. My personal view is that they can both coexist very happily and they should both coexist very happily. But at the same time, uh, you can appreciate people who uh, like the very straight up uh, old school journalistic style of sports broadcasting as well. Uh, so I'm not sure what you make of all of this, Louise. Yeah, no, I think it does raise some interesting thoughts and it's, you know, even it's a good article because it makes the reader 
um, think about what they prefer. Like certainly I find for someone who what is, you know, sport is their their life, but there's so much sport on to keep up that I love the video content because if you do miss something, it's impossible to keep up with everything. You have um, that kind of visual animation of, um, of you know, a synopsis of the game or of a, a, a point of what's come up out in the media uh, in the last few days. So I certainly like the video option. But I like the seriousness and the fun bit as well because it's a bit like, you know, a conversation you can have with your friends who are actually really interested in your in, in the same thing, which is sport, and it can be quite in-depth and quite serious. Um, and I think obviously after the ball have such brilliant contributors, um, <laughs> such a depth, uh, knowledge and awareness of games, um, that, but at the same time you could just make a dinner and there's a quip about something completely irrelevant. You just feel like you're listening to friends having a chat at times. I personally really like that. And I think that's why it, it is successful because I don't all want to hear this kind of serious prototype of you know it's particularly when you're doing interviews with players and they're so well media trained like that's boring that's mm. that's sports media gone the wrong way and we do want those interviews we do want to hear the likes of uh you know the, the managers and the players before and after the game but bringing it back to the start of the show we love someone like Raj who's just a bit different and a bit more honest and a bit more unique we still crave that sort of um I suppose information and that knowledge and as well I think he talks about it being diluted as you know, what I like about off the ball, it's not just about the big three, which the the rugby, the soccer, the GA. There is that ability to you know jump on something that's just happened, that's new. Having said that, I know we haven't even got round. It hasn't been in the papers much to the four by four hundred relay or the four by one hundred girls from yesterday. But it's okay. Dilution is one way of looking at it, but it's also trying to cater for all all tastes and all needs. And you know, not it's not just devoted to the same three top sports in males and male sport with that as well so yeah. you know dilution is one way of looking at it but i think it's catering for a broader audience i find it really interesting as well the influence maybe like someone that's um some of the ilk of him and dunphy would have had on the entire industry like mm. jerry says what dunphy did with the last word is actually an important cultural moment in independent broadcast radio in this country it meant we could have other conversations outside of what was going on uh, in rte like i find that particular conversation really interesting gay burn as well and the way that Maybe he didn't really care too much about the wrath of his bosses if he said something on air. And, and that's a really important cultural moment in, in media and in broadcasting in this country. There are tons of fascinating nuggets in this. I know I'm kind of, uh, I have my tongue in cheek quite a lot talking about this, as you can imagine. But it's an excellent piece. There's really good stuff on Jurist Stint on News Talk Breakfast. There's really good stuff on Second Captains and their departure from News Talk as well. If you're unfamiliar with any of those stories, you'll be up to speed on all of that. And, and it's all covered in really good detail. It's four pages in the Sunday Independent. Uh, and as ever, Paul Kimmage delivers the goods. Just very finally, Dan, just before we wrap up, I'm sorry to have to squeeze you now into 30 to 60 seconds here. But uh, the piece on Leona Maguire is something you wanted to draw everyone's attention to as well. Oh, yeah. It's worth mentioning that. Dermot Gillies' piece on Leona Maguire. And actually... Uh, I think, and I'm very. Louise actually made the point there that he, you don't want every piece about sort of, uh, uh, you know, women in sport to become about the issue of like, you know, uh, financial issues and and sort of that 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 battle that has been faced because you want to look beyond that. But in saying that, like this is a pretty striking piece in that area, and that Leona Maguire is like a new, 
as is is coming into women's golf at a time when there's much more opportunity available than there would have been 20, 30 years ago. And just one little thing that struck me about Maureen Medill, it was a broadcaster now, but very good golfer in the 80s, had an entire productive season in 1987. Her tournament earnings, the 13th in the money list, amounted to a, mo- a modest £16,000. Now, I know you could say that's a lot in all money or whatever, but £16,000 like you know for a year i presume of travel and stuff like that and it, the piece touches on how a, lot, a load of amateur golfers at that time just couldn't justify going professional because it just wasn't worth it the only require is getting the chance to do that now and by mm. all by all accounts she's going to do a very good job of it yeah no she's having a brilliant year so far to say the least listen dan mcdonald louise galvin a pleasure as ever thanks a million for that today thanks guys thanks so the sunday papers on off the ball